Welcome to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey, a podcast to encourage, educate, and equip you to care for children and youth through adoption, foster, and kinship care. Hosted by an adoptive mom with over 22 years of kinship and adoptive parenting experience, she's on this journey with you. Please welcome Sandra Flack. Oh Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. That is Psalm 139, verse 1 and 13 through 14. Important verse to meditate on while raising children with trauma histories and drug and alcohol exposure in the womb. I am your host, Sandra Flack. Thank you for joining me today. We have an inspiring and accomplished guest with us today on this FASD month lineup. But first, be sure to check out our bonus episodes with Dr. Jared Brown, PhD. Dr. Brown specializes in trauma, FASD, autism, and much, much more. I'm recording a series of bonus episodes with Dr. Brown, focusing on topics of particular interest to adoptive and foster parents, such as prenatal trauma, complex trauma, attachment, FASD, screen time, inappropriate sexual behavior, and so, so much more. Regular episodes of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey drop into your inbox, onto your device on Mondays. These special bonus episodes with Dr. Brown will drop on Fridays. You will not want to miss them. Uh, they all Everything lands in the same place, but I really want you to take note of those bonus episodes. Also, if you are an adoptive or foster parent or caregiver of an individual prenatally exposed to alcohol or other substances, be sure to check out all of the resources on our website specifically for this parenting journey, including our new Hope for the FASD Journey support community led by myself and my buddy Natalie Vecchione of the FASD Hope podcast. To check out all of our resources and to sign up for the community, visit justicefororphansny.org. And of course, we'll have links in the show notes as well. Now to our guest, Lucas Boyce. Lucas is a former foster child born premature to a courageous teenager caught in the grips of substance abuse, developmentally delayed as a result of prenatal exposure to drugs and alcohol. Lucas struggled out of the gate and ended up failing kindergarten. However, his adoptive mom, Dorothy, taught him valuable principles that drove his determination to overcome all odds, eventually graduating, serving in the White House and flying on Air Force One, like who gets to do that, uh, and becoming an executive with the NBA's Orlando Magic. Lucas Boyce is the author of Living Proof, From Foster Care to the White House and the NBA, the powerful story of an illegitimate black foster child, the unwavering faith of his white adoptive mother, and their journey to prove when hard work, determination, and grace meet opportunity, anything can happen. 
please welcome Mr. Lucas Boyce. Hey, Lucas. Hey, Miss Sandra. How are you? Uh, I'm excited and honored to have you on the show today. I'm thrilled that my listeners get to hear your story. I've read your book and have such um, you have such an incredible and inspiring story. Um, and as an adoptive mom of five kids, some prenatally exposed to alcohol, your story gives me a great hope. Um, and I know in your, your, in your book and when you speak, um, you tell the story and acknowledge two moms. Would you tell yeah. us, tell us about them? So I have two moms. I have a black mom and a white mom. I'll tell you about my birth mother, who's my black mom first. Her name was Carol Jones. And um, she had me when she was about 18 years old. And her story was is a unique one. It's it's probably a, a story that's similar to the lot to a lot of the ones that you hear. Um, she had everything going for her, um, got caught up with the wrong crowd, um, got into drugs, got into being in alcohol in order to support these habits as she became addicted. Uh, she used her body um, and I am the result. Um, we have no clue who my dad is um, and my birth mother doesn't know, um, but she did make a wonderful, courageous choice. Um, you know, they found out that, that she was pregnant about three or four months in. And so, um, but by then I had been exposed to enough drugs and alcohol to have a severe impact on me as I was born. So I was, um, she had me when she was 18, as I said before, um, went, went through with the pre pregnancy um, and I was born about six weeks premature, weighed about four pounds, two ounces, and was in the NICU for the first 10 days of, of, of my life to determine viability um, because of the drugs and alcohol that she consumed um, and the impact it had on my body. And so she's my black mom. And I used to have this caricature of her um, that was really, really unfair and very, very judgmental of a lot of the decisions that, that she made. But I've found as I've gotten older in life, and I'll be completely honest with you and your, your, um, your, your subscribers uh, to the podcast, um, is that I've struggled with some of the same things that my birth mother struggled with. And when I went through those struggles, it really tempered me and it gave me a real appreciation for the struggle that she had with substance abuse and alcohol um, and the choices that she made as a teenager. Um, but she made a courageous choice and, and I, uh, they looked for family um, to take care of me um, and no one would step up to the plate. And so they sent me to foster care straight from the hospital. And that's where I met my white mom, my other mom. And her name is Dorothy. And Dorothy is, um, she's almost 80 now, but at the time she's a young 20 something person. And over the course of about 15 years, she had over 40 foster care children that she cared for. A lot of special needs children, a lot of children that had fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, um, the impact in their life. Um, and, but, but she was a very, very special mom. She had uh, four of her own she adopted six of us and my stepdad has three girls. So we're a big family of 13 right now, but at one point my white mom or, or, or Dorothy, she was a single mom to 11 children. And um, those are my two moms. And uh, I'm very, very thankful for both of them because yes. they both have intertwined and have sowed seeds and have done something that has impacted my life for good. Yes. Love that. I love that. Uh, so 
What else do you remember about growing up those early years as a foster child in Dorothy's home and eventually getting adopted? Yeah, I mean, part of FASD affects memory. Yes. <laughs> and I have that impact on me um, because of some of the choices that, that mom made. Um, you're familiar with a lot of the, the things that manifest with respect to FASD. But um, I have a few memories growing up. I was adopted pretty early. I was adopted um, when I was almost three. And so those early, early childhood memories of, um, I can remember um, being put into the back of a car. It was a social worker's car and remembering what it meant to be in that social worker's car. And that meant that they were taking me to visit my birth mother and the um, conditions and environment that she lived in were really, really, really bad. And I can remember having a real strong opinion, even as a baby, um, being taken to away from my white mom, who be, really became my mom from 10 days old, right straight to her home from the hospital. Um, so I have that memory. Um, you know, after being um, after being adopted, you know, I was excited. We had a very multicultural family and I can remember um, her. My mom treating all of us the same, whether we were white or black, whether we were her birth children or not, whether we had special needs or not. She treated us all the same. I can remember getting up a lot of uh, during elementary school years. Mom would get us up really early in the morning. And before we do anything, we'd have a study and worship. And I can remember a living in covenant book um, that that had principles for um, a good life that we would be encouraged and taught out of every single day, along with the Bible. I can remember for my 10th birthday, I think asking for a Bible for my birthday, which is a weird request for, um, I also love to clean. And so one of my requests for a birthday one year was a vacuum cleaner. So um, I had odd and unique requests growing up, but um, I can remember being a very loving home, a very multicultural home. Um, and it being a place where everyone felt loved and valued and that they belonged regardless of who they were. Well, I can tell you that I can only wish that one of my children would ask for a vacuum cleaner or <laughs> for their birthday, um, because trust me, nobody's even offering to use the one we got. Um, but Lucas, with uh, the developmental disability, with, with the alcohol exposure, what was school like for you? Because it's so hard for most kids. Yeah, I mean, let me go to page 31 of my book, and it talks about kind of some of the impacts of FASD on children. Um, it says, you know, the environment uh, that you're brought up in is is fraught with a lot of um, very negative consequences and, and headwinds. It says children with fetal alcohol spectrum are often premature and underweight. That's me. Um, I weigh less than about 25 and I have forever on, in my years. So it's really hard for me to gain weight. Um, it says that we have small heads and that's me too. I can't wear regular hats. Actually, I wear visors cause they're tighter around my head. Um, and they're unlikely to, or they're likely to remain unusually small and thin. Uh, many are, are mentally handicapped. Um, they experience a host of other medical and psychological problems that are, aren't grown as the child ages hyperactivity and a poor attention span, that's me, or common you know, problems, uh, growth deficiency, that's me, central nervous dysfunctions, uh, impulsivity, memory problems, and learning disorders, mm -hmm. right? Yep. So I, uh, 
um, got to have all of those, a lot of those <laughs> uh, symptoms as a part of uh, the impact of what FASD has meant to me. And so school was a, has always been especially hard. And um, I actually ended up flunking kindergarten um, because of uh, the, I wasn't ready yet. And I was premature birth. So I came out undercooked anyway. Um, and then with all the other complications, um, it just, I just had to repeat kindergarten, um, you know, and so that was my very first um, experience with setback in life is, is flunking kindergarten. But that was also my mom's uh, first opportunity to kind of sow seeds of empowerment into me. And, and she did it for all of her children. Um, and she said that you can do, that I could do anything I put my mind to. Mm. Um, and that if I remembered who I was and who I represented, that for me, that meant representing God and his son and being good. Um, that she couldn't guarantee my success, but she can guarantee that the likelihood for my success would be that much greater. Um, so I kind of took her to word. And so that's kind of how I approached school. I, I um, had to work harder than everybody else, uh, work longer than everybody else, work ahead um, of everybody else to try and um, be normal or at least be caught up to everybody else. And so, um, but I'm thankful for mom and and, and mentors and for friends that really encouraged me through school. Um, I was able to be to take flunking kindergarten into being valedictorian of my, of my small high school class when I was graduating from high school, right? Wow. And so, um, but the Herculean effort that that took, um, but kind of was that first setback in life, wanted to always try and do well in, in whatever I did and school was an important uh, piece of my life back then. And so um, was blessed to be able to, to take that and flip it into something so positive. Um, but still, even within, um, wanted to go to college, right? But I I took the ACT. On that. Some people take the SAT. I took the ACT and it took me three times to get the minimum score. <laughs> even after being valedictorian, it took me three times to get the minimum score to be accepted into a state college. Um, and I went to the University of Central Missouri. I got my degree in political science and speech communication. But once I got there, I worked my butt off. Um, I was able to graduate with honors. Same thing with grad school. One to, you know, if as you grow in life and as you grow professionally, you have to get additional education in order to be able to um, expand and, and grow in your career, right? And so, but there was no way in my head, in my mind, with my disability, that I was going to pass a GMAT, <laughs> you know, there's no way. And so there was this top executive program at Rollins College, which is a college here in Winter Park, Florida, um, for my MBA. And, and if I got accepted into that top leadership program, it was VPs and above at their companies. It was a stretch for me. I was a director at, um, at my company at the time, um, but they didn't have to take the GMAT if you got into that program. And so I tried to go for that program. Um, I didn't get in that program at all, um, but they called me and they said, hey, we have the Saturday uh, professional executive MBA um, and it starts that this day um, and we'd, we'd like to offer you a spot in that class. And to get into that, if I had gone through that other route, I would have had to take the GMAT. Um, but because I applied for that other um, program and didn't get into it, they just placed me into this other program. And so the God's grace and mercy and, and, mm. and favor was just all over that, right? And because there was no way. And grad school was hard. I was working a full-time job. I just 
published a book. I'd, I was serving on 10 to 15 nonprofit boards throughout the community and going to school um, and, and traveling around and giving speeches. And, and it was difficult and hard. Um, and thankfully, it was a team-based um, type of structure. So I was able to really lean on my teammates and they were able to lean on me for my strengths and was able to, to get in and graduate with 3.82. Um, wow. with my MBA, right. And so I know your very short question is long answer, but how is school for me? That was how it has been and how it continues to be. Even at work now, I work as hard and I have to work doubly hard, especially in the analysis because there's strategy and there's math and, and all kinds of different critical thinking and, and um, analysis that has to be done as a part of what I do day to day now. Um, and so I still am every day when I come into the office, I kneel on the floor and I ask God for his help to be productive and efficient and for him to literally help me work. Pray for my colleagues. And before I leave at the end of the day, I kneel down on the floor and I thank God for this job, that it's a blessing to have this job. I know how hard it is. Um, and so that's how I approach it even now. It's just as much hard work as possible. Yeah, it seems like sheer determination and God's grace. Um, and I, I see with my kids, like there seems to be these huge deficits and things that is that are really hard for them to do and almost impossible, if not impossible. But yet when there's something they are determined to do that they want to do and they put that effort into it, they can do those things. And I see that with you, with just having the determination, you have a goal, you're going after it, and there's no such thing as can't, right? You're, you're going after it. Um, you're able to, to, to succeed and thrive in that area. So that's so inspirational. I love that. Um, so another question I have for you is, well, and you kind of addressed this a little bit because I know your, your mom, you know, your home was multicultural, but what was it like for you? Was it, did you have any problems or challenges growing up as a black kid with a white mom? Yeah. The, um, the kids at school didn't understand that mom was this wonderful human being that took all these people into her home. Um, and so I wasn't black enough for the black kids. Um, and I talked different. I talked white is what they said. And so my own um, black culture, I had a lot of difficulty growing up because I felt like an outsider to them. Um, and, and mom, you know, did her best, you know, <laughs> to figure out how to cut our hair and do all the things that we need to do in terms of culturally. Um, and she showed us a lot of love. I joke with people that I didn't realize I was black until I got into college and went to this to this to this very very um, diaspora in this diverse community of people. Um, but uh, and that's I went through this existential crisis where I started wearing FUBU and wearing all these big clothes and hoodies and all this different stuff, trying to identify right. And so my identity um, was something that that mom was very very quick to to teach us that first our identity was in Christ mm. um, and that it wasn't really related to our ethnicity or our race. Um, and so that was, that was a key kind of learning growing up. Um, I also tell people that before I ever read Dr. King's, I have a dream speech, mom was preaching that to us and demonstrating that to us. Um, you know, I had a, I have a, a, a wonderful black uncle, uh, or sorry, white uncle, who's my mom's brother. He's since passed. Um, but when I was eight years old, I wanted to make a decision for Christ to be baptized. 
Um, he had said he was going to do the baptism, but at the last moment, the night before, called my mom and said he couldn't do the baptism. It was because I was black. Wow. <laughs> and, and that in his belief system, he had been taught that black people don't have um, an opportunity to enter heaven or to be oh. a part of salvation. Wow. Um, you know, I, I did not hold that against him and we and never um, we became good friends before he passed. Um, but that was the reality at that time, you know, and, and um, or his reality, his perception. Yeah. I can remember the first time I was called a, a the N word. You know, when I went to um, visit my dad's mom in a nursing home in Iowa um, and, and they said, look at that little in boy, um, you know, and so I can remember um, making great friends growing up and never having that as a problem, but being with a friend, spending the night um, walking down the side of the road and have somebody yell out their, out their truck to tell me to get out of town and then they do a big U-turn and start peeling out after us. And we got to run through a field <laughs> to wow. escape them. Um, you know, so there are a few, you know, there's a constantly being pulled over by the police, um, you know, and, but mom teaching us there's a way to respond to that. So there wasn't this aggression I had growing up towards the police. I was just always taught to be too intent and very, very respectful and go very, very slow. Yeah. So that was kind of a little bit, you know, I was one of the few black kids in my, in my um, school. It was, a, it's a, it was a small Christian school, but everybody was white, but um, you know, it was tough dating. Everybody loved me. Um, I was the, the, I got good grades. I was valedictorian. I was the high school um, student council president, right? I was, I was the captain of the basketball team, you know, so I was a good kid, you know, uh, but no one, they loved me, but didn't want me to date their daughter. Right, <laughs> right. So much so that when I did date somebody, they made a point to tell me how happy they were that I was dating their daughter and how much they were okay with it. And so those are kind of the things growing up that um, were interesting in a multicultural household and a small community in, in the Midwest where I grew up. Yeah. Wow. Well, you, you all throughout your book and, and even just talking with you today, um, you honor your adoptive mom, Dorothy. Um, you share the things that she's taught you and give her a lot of credit for that. So what are some of the principles that Dorothy instilled in you? Mm -hmm. First off, she taught me about Christ. Um, my theme scripture, our theme scripture, is it comes out of Psalms 139. Um, and she taught us from the scripture. The scripture talks about that God uh, knew us before we were ever born, and he, um, he knit us together in our mother's wombs. And so in the midst of a disability that is hard on a number of fronts, there is this covering of grace in the womb. Um, I have brothers and sisters that have had way more severe impacts of FASD than I could ever imagine. I have a sister, Leslie, who has Prader-Willi syndrome. So she has the mind of a three-year-old as a result of some of the choices her birth mother made with respect to drugs and alcohol. Now, my brother, Albert, died early in life, paralyzed from the waist down, um, spina bifida, because of the effects of alcohol and or drugs as he was growing up in the womb. And so it was, um, it, there's so much to be thankful for. And she taught us that to be grateful and thankful and that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that we're special, um, that, we're, that we're created for something. Um, and I say um, that being 
being built for something more is what she taught us. Um, that we were more than what we were at the current moment and that we can literally achieve our dreams. Um, and she, she taught us um, to, to love one. She didn't treat her birth children any different than she taught or, or, or treated us, her, her adopted children, or even those of us with disabilities that, her, um, that others didn't have. Um, and so that in turn really shaped how I approached people. And so I have come from this multicultural background and able to really be a utility um, knife in the um, public sphere as a result of this bicultural upbringing um, and to be able to be comfortable in different environments for different people. Um, and, and she taught us that. Um, and she taught us about what love is, um, the definition of love, um, which is for her sacrifice. And she sacrificed so much of her life for all these children. Um, she, uh, she taught us her two keys to success, which I've already kind of mentioned that we can do anything we put our minds to, um, and that to remember who we are and who we represent. Um, and that was always a big one. And I haven't always followed mom's keys to success. I'll admit that to you. Um, but I can also tell you that when I have, um, moments and life have become much more meaningful um, and impactful uh, when I've done it the way she's taught me to do it the right way. I love it. I love it. And you mentioned um, first and foremost, Christ. She taught you about Christ, led you to Christ. So what role has faith played in your life? Faith is the foundation of my life. Um, God and his son um, are everything to me. And preserving me in my mother's womb from a worse fate than I could have ever experienced to um, being concerned about me. So much so being concerned about me and, and planned for that my mother shares a story that before I was ever born in 1971 or 72, God gave her an experience, uh, gave her a vision where she saw me and was told my name and that she would have me as her son. She's white, and then she has this experience where her voice speaks to her heart and tells her that the black baby she sees in her mirror is going to be hers. Um, and she shared that with me growing up. And, and that meant that before my mother ever got caught up in the grips of substance abuse and or alcoholism, God knew and planned for me um, and that I would be here on this earth at this appointed time. Um, my first testimony of, of God and his son is that that he would plan for me um, and, and make a way for me before ever there was um, a difficult story or another tragic statistic. Um, and that's been um, everything to me. Um, I have built my life on what I trust in him for. Um, and he says in Psalms and Proverbs that we should trust in the Lord with all of our heart and, and lean not into our own understanding. And all of our ways acknowledge him and he would direct our paths. And that was another scripture mom taught us growing up. And so I've tried to use that as a key scripture throughout life to, you know, trust in God. And, and in the end, when I have trusted in him, it's been better than anything I could have designed on paper or in my head uh, as the outcome. And so I um, can't stress enough faith. It's, it's been there from a little child to a teenager, um, you know, going to camps, Christian camps in the summer and getting closer to God, um, being called of God at 
an early age to be a minister for him and accepting that call as an imperfect human being um, and, and being able to travel to Mexico and to Africa and other places to share my testimony of what he's done for me and what he can do for others. Um, it's been, you know, as, especially as an imperfect minister of faith is, is, has really been there. Um, especially because it hasn't always been roses and, and rainbows. You know, there's a lot of difficulty that takes place in life and faith uh, gets us through that. I, about two years ago, went through a 33 month period where I didn't have a full-time job after all these accolades and all these things that I've done and, and been able to accomplish. Um, and, and that was one of the worst times in my life, economically and financially. Um, but it was also an opportunity and the best time I asked God when I was a young kid, I said, when am I going to be converted? And it popped in my head at a time when you least expect it, but at a time when you're the most prepared. And it was during this 33 month winter season that me and God and his son became even closer and closer and closer so much so that there isn't anything I don't do without going to him first um, and getting his direction and crying out to him daily for protection and for help. And he does that day by day for me, even in the midst of my stupid humanity and sin. Yeah, I hear you, boy, on that one. But such an inspiration, Lucas. Um, now, you graduated with some pretty big dreams yes, um, <laughs> that did become reality. Um, so tell us about those. Sure. So when I um, graduated high school, mom asked me her, her, these questions. She said, what's next? What do you want to accomplish? And how are you going to get there? And I told her I grew up in the nineties, um, and teenager in the nineties. And, um, I wanted to serve God. Uh, I wanted to be a minister for him. I told her I wanted to work at the white house. Um, I told her I wanted to fly aboard air force one. And I told her I wanted to work for an NBA team, the Chicago bulls. All right. And so I can remember going to Washington, D.C. as a teenager and going up to the fence at the White House at age 16 and putting my face to the fence and saying, one day I want to be on the inside. I can remember the movie Air Force One when it came out in 1997 and being on the front row of the movie theater watching this um, incredible movie about this iconic plane that is one of the the um, most durable symbols of our democracy uh, across the entire world. Um, and I love Michael Jordan, what he overcame being cut from his high school basketball team. I came out of the womb being cut from my team mm. and having to go to another team. And what he was able to overcome um, really inspired me. And I wanted to, and I'm about five foot six on a good day. So I had no grand delusions <laughs> about being an NBA basketball player, but I knew there was more the way he saw on the court. And so I told my mom these dreams, not knowing the odds of them ever happening. We have 360 million Americans, maybe, and maybe 2 million government jobs of, uh, if you're a Republican, Democrat, or independent, and you're a president, you take 5,000 of your best friends to DC to work with you. Of the 5,000 jobs, maybe 500 of them ever, ever work at the White House at any given time. And of the 500 that work at the White House or other agencies throughout the government, maybe 25 to 30 people travel with the president on Air Force One on a regular basis. But none of those odds meant anything to me. It, um, it What moms taught us meant the most is that if we believed in God, we could do anything we put our minds to. And if we remembered who we are and who we represent, that we could be successful. 
Um, and those are my dreams. And I said them at age 19 and over the course of 10 years, the God of creation said yes to every single one of those dreams. Um, I was blessed to be a, a intern after 9-11, uh, the first internship class after 9-11 at the White House. I finished college early and was on the ground floor of Jeff, George W. Bush's re-election campaign in 2004, was the African-American um, director of outreach for the president um, from about 2005 to 2007-ish. Um, and so I, that meant I was his chief liaison to the African-American community in the entire United States. And then the last job I had um, was I was in charge of 10 states from Missouri to California. So anytime he went to one of those states, I was in charge of his trip, which meant, again, a lot of hard hours at work, but it also meant I got to travel with him on Air Force One. And so mm. just one by one, um, and God called me to the ministry, allowed me to go to these places and share his name, share my faith. Um, and then the opportunity to come here in 2008 to Florida and, and work for the Orlando Magic was the culmination of these dreams. So I said at 19 and at age 29, um, God had said yes to each and every one of those goals. And I tell you, it's God. It wasn't my strength. It wasn't my ability. You know what FASD is like. You know the disabilities. You know how hard it is. And so you've got to know and understand that that was grace and mercy, and that that was truly just God saying yes to his son because he tells us that he's the father to the fatherless. Yeah. Oh, amen. And and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, That's right? right? And yes, and just like you said, the odds of you doing any one of those three things and just having those big dreams and knowing that, you know, you didn't look at the 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 chances of those things happening, but just that that was your dream and you trusted God to work those things out. Um, you know, I mean it had to be incredible uh, you know, I know in the book you describe meeting President Bush, George W. Bush. Um, can you give us a little snippet of that day? Yeah. So it was March 25th, 2002. I was picked randomly, uh, you know, just to get an internship at the White House is a blessing. Thousand resumes, they take 100 students um, for a semester. And I was picked as one of those students to be part of a photo op on the South Lawn with him. Um, I was there with about eight or 10 other kids and we just kind of chopped it up, started talking back and forth. And after the official photographer taking a photo, I shook his hand, pulled him in for a hug a little bit there and kind of um, was broke protocol. But I shook his hand I sh and I said, sir, I'm praying for you. The cause is just and this is right after 9-11 took place and kind of takes a step back and he says, thank you. It is. Next day, um, you know, I think that's just a really cool day. I go home, I call my mom, I'm the president, I'm an intern, I'm excited, I've achieved my dream, I'm going to go home and go back to school. And, and then the next day, uh, my boss comes back from a meeting in the Oval Office with the president and he says, Lucas, you kind of made an impression on the president yesterday. And he proceeds to kind of share how the president pulled him aside after this meeting. He says, hey, I met this kid in South Lawn yesterday, what's his name again? So, well, that was Lucas. Like, well, what's his story? And my boss at the time, Ed Moy, began to share with President George W. Bush um, a little bit about what I've shared with you and your listeners about being born uh, the way I've been born into foster care and adoption with FASD. And um, the president did something um, that literally launched my, my career. He said, well, what can we do for him? Let's bring him on board. Um, and that was how I got my start, by that random chance encounter. I say chance, but really divine encounter with a former president that had a heart to remember some random kid that he met the, the day before and remembered that his boss is in the office and go ask about him and then go one step further and say, give him a job. 
And that was my first lesson in leadership, that you know the true character of an individual by how they treat the person that can do nothing for them. I could do nothing for this man. I was an intern, couldn't give him any money for his next campaign, couldn't help him with the black vote, couldn't do anything, right? Uh, but he took the time to chat, took a photo, remembered me, followed up, and then asked him to give me a job. Um, and that, for me, means it doesn't matter whether it's you or the governor or the president or a homeless person on the side of the street, everybody's treated like a VIP. Um, and that was my first lesson in leadership, to treat everybody like a VIP because he, that's what he did for me. Wow. I love that. And and your other dream about flying on Air Force One, because like you said, that's what are the chances of that? Like maybe 25 people, you know, mm -hmm. around the president get to do that. But so just tell us what that first experience, the first time you flew on Air Force One was like. Yeah, the first time was uh, 829.07, August 29, 2007. And it was um, coming back from New Orleans, um, Louisiana. Uh, the second anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. And um, I was expecting, I was doing volunteer advance where you go ahead of the president and you prepare the event and all these different things. I had two huge events in the lower ninth ward of the um, of, of, of New Orleans. And um, my friend, Jason Recker, who's a person who would travel with the president every time he traveled. He was a guy that briefed the president on what he was going to do when he steps off the plane, all that kind of stuff. Um, we become good friends and he said that uh get a surprise for me that on the way back um it was a very very full plane but he was trying to get me a spot in air force one to fly back um because that wasn't guaranteed right there's only a few people that get to do that and somebody that normally travels gave up their spot and went commercial so i could take that spot um and be in that chair and i can um was like a kid in a candy store i'm a pretty reserved person and i try and keep it together a lot but i was um just so elated. I'd seen the movie. I'd read these books. You see these things on the History Channel about what Air Force One is like. And to be able to walk and see the president's office or or um, the communications equipment and or um, the, the technology that they have available or even just eat the food. It's amazing. <laughs> um, it just is it's a flying. It's a flying office, you know, and it's big and spacious. And um, it was um, it's in its casual it's a little bit more buttoned up at the white house but when you're in air force one it's a little bit more laid back um and so it was cool to build that family um from a um from a professional standpoint um and to to make the uh to know the navy stewards and the and to get to know the secret service agents um and uh the air force personnel that took care of the plane and flew us around um was just special i can't tell you and it's hard to describe. You have to experience it yourself because, yeah, it's a big plane. I'm certain there's a lot of billionaires and all and they have tons of planes that are really, really nice and tricked out. But this one just has so much meaning, you know, because of uh, its symbolism and importance to the American people um, and its and the weight and its reputation around the world. So exciting. Uh, just so exciting. And and um, now your third dream about playing or not playing because you, you you're a little on the shorter side you said <laughs> so you knew you weren't going to play but you wanted to work for one of these nba teams so yeah as president bush's administration was coming to a close and uh everybody had to you know decide what was going to come next or what they were going to do next um what came next for you sure what came next for me was achieving that dream and it it came uh, as a result of my friend kevin sullivan I was walking back with him. Um, 
South Lawn, the White House from an event I was just completing um, in, in 2007, 2008. And we were getting ready to end the administration. He asked me the perfunctory question, what's next? I told him all the standard answers you're supposed to give. And then something just kind of popped in my head. Tell him about your dream. So I said, Kevin, I've always wanted to work for an NBA team. He's like, really? I didn't know that. I used to work for the Dallas Mavericks, which is an NBA team, before he came to the White House. I had no clue. And so he became my mentor. And, and his friend, Joel Glass, who's senior vice president with the Orlando Magic here in Orlando, Florida, came to Washington, D.C. with his family to take a, a tour on vacation. And I gave them a West Wing tour and asked for my resume. And they called me, they interviewed me, and then they said, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> and I thought that was just a nice thing they were doing for Joel. And, and it was a good connection to have. Eight months, nine months later, they called me about a, a new position they were creating um, rooted in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and reaching out to the community to build a fan base that was reflective of the community. Um, and they asked if I was interested. And, and um, I, I finished my last event with the president on July 18, 2008, and less than a week later started with the Orlando Magic, um, one of the premier NBA teams at the time of, um, uh, of, uh, of my third and fourth dream, which was to work for an NBA team. And that was at age 29, just after my 29th birthday. Wow. Incredible. Incredible. Now you shared a little bit ago that you had like 33 months of no full-time employment. So what are you doing now? Sure. So right now I'm working for uh, Mayor Jerry L. Demings um, and Byron W. Brooks, um, the county administrator. I work in local government uh, for Orange County government here in Orange County, Florida. That's where Orlando is. It's where Disney Universal, all your theme parks, big theme parks are here. We have about 1.4 million residents that we serve, a $5.2 billion budget that the mayor oversees. Um, and the county administrator serves as his chief operating officer, runs the entire county. And I'm blessed to be his uh, one of his assistants. And so um, that means any number of things with respect to it could be writing a speech one day, preparing a letter, report, um, preparing a presentation before the entire Board of County Commissioners at, as we speak. Um, it could be um, other duties as assigned events, um, analysis, recommendations, uh, advice and counsel, um, or just making sure everybody has a comfortable chair to sit in <laughs> at a meeting. <laughs> Um, and so I really, when people ask me what I do, I tell them I do whatever they ask me to do um, and have been blessed to be able to have a really, really diverse array of experiences because I work for the person who runs it all. So I get to look at a lot of different things. So I did a, just finished up a huge research project to recommend to our mayor that we should hire a chief diversity, equity and inclusion officer and start that initiative in ours. So that took a year and a half to do that research. Um, the towing industry would like us to increase our towing fees. Um, so I'm doing an analysis on that and what other counties have and, and um, um, what, the, what the state law says um, and what my recommendation to the mayor and to the county commissioners is. So working on that right now. And so um, it's, um, it's organizational development. I focus on our senior leaders, our management, and I try and focus on their development through um, um, trainings and through uh, keynote speakers and, and things like that. We have a quarterly managers meeting where the senior leadership of the organization, about 100 people get together. And so I run the agenda um, and help 
with the logistics and implementation of that meeting every four months. That's kind of one of my babies. Um, you know, we have a, a annual report to the community about what the mayor has accomplished. And that's one of my babies is to, um, to lead that effort. Um, and, and it's, it's good work. It's tough work. It's different than the federal government. It's completely different and it's hard. Um, sometimes with FASD, it's hard. The, the, the analysis for this towing thing is it's been about a year project, but it was every day I was doing that. I was help me, God, help me, God, help me, God, please help me, please, please, please. This is hard. And so, and he's been gracious and good to help me. Um, and it's a, it's a fun job. It's a busy job. Um, but it, uh, impacts a lot of people and so i can federal government you know they write the check but this is at the local levels where the check gets spent and mm. we get to spend that money and i get to see how it's deployed throughout the community especially as we went through covid the pandemic um and how we reached out to our community with rental assistance with mortgage assistance uh with food with with, with masks with other personal protective equipment and how the mayor and us had to respond in real time to a crisis. So I've had to support that and see that come to, to fruition. And so um, it's a, it's, that's what I'm doing now. And it was a, a LinkedIn connection, a, a relationship with the mayor that caused this. You know, I went three to three months, you know, my car was repossessed. I had to move home with my mom after working at the White House, doing all these things. I had to move home with mom, I had an MBA, move home with mom. Um, and I, met up with the mayor when I was giving a speech here in November of 18, 2018. And I asked him, I'd like to come back to Florida. Um, and if he has a spot on his team, he was sheriff at that time. And then he, had, and he was about to become mayor and he called, um, and his team called and then Byron called and, uh, been blessed to work here since March 4th of 2019. That is wonderful. And Lucas, you are so talented and intelligent and well-spoken. And, you know, I'm sitting here thinking it's almost impossible to believe that you have an FASD, but yet you've been very honest about the way it has impacted you and the challenges that you do face. Um, you know, so even today, what are some of those developmental challenges, FASD type challenges that you struggle with um, you know, on a daily basis, what are what are some of those things? Like, where does it rear its Memory ugly head? Problems. The day by day is where it really. Memory, yeah. My fiance is so patient. He's like, I already told you that. <laughs> um, and I've had a bad memory from since I was a kid. Just um, um, I know that that's been you know a struggle. Um, the learning disability. Um, local government. Gosh. Most of the people I work with have been here for 15, 20 years, and I've been here for three years. And so the cumulative amount of knowledge that they know versus what I'm able to try and glean, um, I'm very much a rookie. And so that's having to get caught up to all the new acronyms and programs and ways they do things at the local government versus the federal government. Um, you know, has been a challenge and is something every day. Again, as I told you before, I come in and I kneel down on the floor and I pray. And before I leave, I kneel down on the floor and I pray uh, because this is hard stuff. This is a big boy, you know, um, big boy job. And, um, you know, and the job doesn't care whether I have an FASD or not. Um, and they just care that I get the job done. And so uh, memory, I write into to counteract that, I, I write down as much as I can all the time. Um, I'm a little, like, it's hard after a while to, to sit 
in meetings and a lot of the meetings sometimes in government go an hour, hour and a half, two hours. And I'm, <laughs> I struggle with ADHD. And so we um, take, take medicine to, to help calm and focus. And it helps um, me to stay focused throughout the day and to stay on task. Um, I try and I'm not a good multitasker, but I try and have a lot of things to do. And so I, I run myself by action item lists And what I try and do is I go by this acronym, Organize, Prioritize, Schedule, OPS. And so as I approach the day and I try and bite-size it, I bite-size it through, right, get everything organized on your action item list, uh, whether that's for um, things at work or things for the small business that I have. Uh, Then I prioritize, all right, what needs to happen next? And then I schedule the time to accomplish the action item. And I, that approach for me has worked. Um, I know I could probably have in, deploy other tactics um, to try and keep on task or stay focused, but these are the things that, that have worked for me. Um, you know, but I'm so thankful I wrote this book because I don't know if I could remember <laughs> all the, like a mom writes a lot in the book and she helps me with a lot of their stories and things from my youth and things like that. But I'm, but like, because I wrote the book, I can tell you the first date I met the president. I can tell you what the, what it felt like that day and what Monday it was Monday in spring and things like that because I wrote it. And so I try and journal a lot. Mm. Um, uh, and, uh, and one of the other things I, I've really been trying to rein in, is spending um, and just finances sometimes are out of whack and and um um you know that's that's not having financial literacy and that's also FASD that impulsive I struggle a little bit with impulsivity um and so again I rely on my faith a heck of a lot to mitigate um and I ask him God to overwhelm my disabilities with his abilities mm, I love that people make have made fun of me because of my small stature um, you know, and so I've finally come to embrace, yep, I'm small and God is mighty. Mm. Um, he is able and he fights our battles. And so I have to reaffirm these things because of a self-esteem with a small head and a small frame, um, and small body as a result of this, of uh, this, di- um, disability, uh, to counteract that with, with faith in God, trust in God, um, for the confidence um, to be able to be out here in this world and to have to run with everybody else, but have uh, not all of the abilities that everybody else has. And he's made up for that gap and it helps me every day. Wow. Love that. Love that. And I, I mean, you know, you started listing off all of those things, you know, and those are all those primary symptoms um, of an FASD, but then also your strategies, that OPS, that's it is great. Organize, prioritize, and schedule. I love that. Um, you. you know, just that's just fabulous. So, Lucas, my, you know, our audience is primarily made up of foster and adoptive and kinship caregivers, many of whom, you know, we are raising children prenatally exposed to alcohol and other substances. Um, many of our kids have FASD and other developmental disabilities, mine included. So what advice would you give us parents who may be struggling to find hope for our kids' future? I think, I mean, I would share with you what 
first off, what what a friend of mine once shared with me, his name is um, Secretary Alfonso Jackson. He's, he used to be the Housing and Urban Development Secretary during George W. Bush's administration. I was in his office one day and, and he was sharing with me about life. Um, he said, you'll have lots of ups and lots of downs. And he is a person who marched in the civil rights movement. He showed me the, the scars from teeth marks that were made by dogs as they were allowed to attack him as he marched for a civil rights. And he said this, he says, Lucas, if you can look up, you can get up. Um, and I would encourage um, the moms and dads out there that, that have children with, with um, other abilities um, to teach your children to look up um, so that they'll always have an attitude to get up. Um, mom, I don't know whether this is right or wrong or not, but she never stressed our disabilities growing up. Um, she, uh, so I didn't, you don't know you have a disability until <laughs> something happens. And, and um, she did a real good job at, at instilling in us um, the positive affirmations of faith that all things are possible with God, that there's nothing impossible, um, that to those that love him, um, there's no, nor eye nor ear hath ever heard what he's prepared for them, right? And so she taught us all of those things um, as, as, and that we were built for something more. And if you can teach your, your children that, and help them believe, literally believe that they are literally built to be superheroes, built to be Marvel characters in their head and that they can accomplish um, what is their aim and desired outcome, um, you guys will have done um, a great service to them. And, and, and there's one thing is there's a lot of people that give up and pass people along through the system. Don't give up on your kids. They could have just shuffled me through the system. Um, you know, and, and my mom and friends, I did have friends that told me to always set my sights a little bit lower. You know, after all, my mom was person that sold her body for drugs and alcohol and I had these disabilities what dreams or what big goals could I ever accomplish according to some of them and so they tried to temper my ambition and my goals uh, with their loving support and and trying to protect me and and don't protect your children if they want to dream something big please let them dream mm. uh, and and mom didn't tell me here's the formula for how it's going to go um, but I put together what I like to call the four p's um, that I'll share with you in your in your audience, um, that plan of action, that game plan uh, of what is next, and 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 then the nuts and bolts of how you're going to get there, and then understanding that there's pain with any worthwhile endeavor, whether it's overcoming an obstacle on one hand or achieving great aims on the other, you'll need to um, coalesce this around you. Um, and gosh, what else was I saying? Um, Plan, pain, we're doing four P's. Pain, four P's. pain. so any any endeavor is going to have a setback. Uh, the third P is patience. Mm. Um, and I've come to learn, and I'm trying to get better at this. Patience isn't just about waiting. It's about what we do while we wait. And then the fourth P is the prize. If we're willing to embrace pain and understand that we have to have a plan, there's going to be setback. And if we're willing to be patient over the course of time, things don't always happen immediately but over the course of time they can accumulate and happen suddenly um, and if you can instill in your your children to help them understand that you know the best plans you know once they come up to the rubber that hits road are going to meet with setbacks and so i didn't know that to begin with so when i came up against setback 
it was this debilitating thing. But when you plan for um, that, you know, anything, if you're trying to gain weight, you know, you're in the gym that first day, it, your muscles are shred, that pain mm-hmm. has to grow back. And that pain over the course of time makes you stronger, stronger, stronger. The setbacks help you um, reprioritize and, 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 and revise and recalibrate to get to where you want to go. Wow. It's just, I mean, I'm just seeing all of that affirmation and encouragement and all of that love that your mom poured into you. You never knew you couldn't achieve your dreams because she told you you could just work hard and you can do it. So I, that's just amazing. I love that. Um, so that's a very tape. Yeah. Yeah. So your book is living proof from foster care to the white house and the NBA. Where can our listeners get a copy? That's right. Yeah. So um, Amazon.com is a great place to grab it. And you can either just um, type in the address or type in the name of the book, or you can um, just type in my name and it'll pop up. It'll pop up. So Amazon.com. I encourage our listeners, especially if you have teenagers, young folks, adopted, fostered, um, you know, especially prenatally exposed Uh, Lucas's story is just an amazing story that will not only give us parents and encourage us, but also encourage and inspire our kids. We will include a link in the show notes for this episode. Uh, Lucas, as we wrap up, is there anything else on your heart that you want to share with our adoptive and foster parents listening? I would just point you to God as I close Um, And and remind your audience um, that the things I've shared with you all um, during this time are, are, it's not my strength. It's not my ability. It's literally God, what he's been, what he's given uh, to me and to, and what he, I believe he's willing and and, and wanting to give to other people. Um, Don't give up on your children uh, and and seek to be that alley-oop for them uh, that George W. Bush was and my mom have been for me. Mm, I love that. Love it. So Lucas, thank you so much for sharing your inspiring story with us today and encouraging us. Welcome. Thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Wow. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey. I am just blown away by Lucas and his story I hope it brought you some hope and encouragement for your parenting journey as well. Be sure to check out the show notes for this episode so you can find links to Lucas's book, Living Proof. Um, Of course, you can just go to Amazon and put in his name, Lucas Boyce, uh, or the title is Living Proof. I encourage you to grab a copy, not only for your own parenting journey, but to share it with your kids, especially if you have teenagers. Um, What an inspiration. Um, just going after his dreams and that hard work and perseverance and his faith. I know I am so encouraged. Uh, So check that out. Um, And also make sure you check out our website, justicefororphansny.org, where you can find our FASD resources, including our FASD 101 workshop, which is available online or in person. It is a 90-minute training about FASD for parents. You can sign up 
uh, to attend or to host a group. If you're part of a support group or a foster parent group, um, you know, and your church has a, an adoptive and foster parent group that meets, um, I would love to bring that to your group. Uh, I can come in person or online. Um, so you can reach out to us if you'd like to schedule one of those. We will be later in the fall offering um, both an in-person and an online one that you could just jump on if you're not part of a, a group that wants to book it. Um, you can you can attend one of those other ones. So stay tuned for the details on that. I have not, as of this recording, have not nailed down the exact dates for that yet, but it is coming. Uh, and you do not want to miss out on becoming a member of our Hope for the FASD Journey online support community hosted by myself and Natalie Vecchione of FASD Hope. Uh, we bring a combined 40 years of adoptive parenting experience to the table through our bi-monthly support group meetings, VIP conversations, and private Facebook group, which includes a weekly devotional for encouragement. But you have to be a member of the community to access these vital resources. So to join the community and for our all the training and resources I already mentioned, um, you would go to justicefororphansny.org, click on the training tab, and you'll see it on the drop on the drop down. There's a tab that says FASD. You click on that, and you'll get all of the um, resources that I've mentioned. And of course, there, you could just follow the link in the show notes as well. Uh, this is uh, FASD Awareness Month. JFO is a platinum sponsor of FASD United's Run FASD. Um, a virtual 5K that you can run, walk, or roll anywhere, anytime during the month of September. To learn more about that, you can go to runfasd.org. You can check out my family's kinship and adoption story in my award-winning book, Orphans No More, A Journey Back to the Father. It won a Golden Scroll Award for Memoir of the Year. I am so honored and still in awe of, of how the Lord worked that out. But you can grab a copy of my book wherever you buy books. Um, if you grab it on Amazon, go back in there. And after you read it, leave a review. If you get Lucas's book, leave him a review too. Because book reviews on Amazon are like gold to authors. Uh, if you'd like a signed copy of my book, which includes a free uh, special gift bookmark, um, you can go to my website, sandraflack.com. There you can learn more about me, read my blog, and contact me for speaking opportunities. I'd also like to give a shout out to our business sponsors, Tri-Nuclear Corporation, Bishop Boundary Construction, National Bank of Koksaki, and Coleman Insurance Agency. These businesses care about children and families in crisis, and they help us do what we do here at JFO. If you enjoyed the show, Please be sure to let us know by subscribing uh, and let your fellow adoptive and fostering friends know so that they can listen and be encouraged too. You can find Justice for Orphans on Facebook and Instagram. You can also find me, Sandra Flack, on Facebook and Instagram. I am so grateful that you spent your valuable time with me today. I am thrilled to have you along for the journey. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast brought to you by Justice for Orphans. We hope you were encouraged today. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review. 
and share it with your fellow foster and adoptive parent friends so they can be encouraged too. Be sure to find and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans. And check out our website for vital resources at justicefororphansny.org.